Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Christopher J. Ryan, Jr., Associate Professor of Law at Roger Williams University School of Law and an affiliated scholar with the American Bar Foundation. We will discuss his work on law school rankings, especially his article, A Value-Added Ranking of Law Schools. So welcome to the podcast, CJ. Thanks for having me, Brian. Really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I know you've done a bunch of uh, kind of econometric and statistical work on uh, legal education. We're going to talk about specifically your work on law school rankings today. Um, and, and I thought you could maybe you could start by just explaining uh, the pa- the first paper that I mentioned. Um, what is a value added ranking? What were you looking to measure in that paper? So that's a great question. You know, I. Um was in a PhD program at Vanderbilt uh, that I completed earlier this year. And um, that program focused on education policy, uh, specifically uh, using econometric methods to evaluate education. And in looking through my course materials for economics of education course that I took, um, I noticed a paper by Raj Chetty, who's an economist at Stanford, who had used this method of value added um, to model the success of teachers in the primary school setting. So, for example, if you have um, a student who's taken a a standardized test in the third grade, um, let's say they got an 80 on the standardized test in the third grade, we might expect that student, all things sort of, um, uh, you know, held at average, for that student to progress on the same test to maybe get an 85% by the time they were done with fourth grade. And what Raj Chetty's value-added rankings did, or value-added modeling did, was attribute the difference between the predicted student's fourth grade uh, score and the actual student's fourth grade score to their fourth grade teacher. And so, um, in essence, this is a way of... of um, using the, 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 the residual difference between an observed outcome and the predicted outcome to, to assign a value to, to a, a, a teacher. And I use the same logic um, to apply to law schools because it's very difficult to get granular student-level data um, at law schools and compare across law schools. So what my paper does is, uh, and, and my method does, is it looks at the incoming um, attributes of a 1L class, such as their LSAT and their GPA. And I look at uh, sort of three different cuts of each of those inputs, the, the 75th percentile, um, the median, and the 25th percentile of each of those inputs. And from those inputs, I predict how those students, those same students would perform on bar passage and uh, employment in in JD required and JD advantaged jobs. And then I examined those same students, that same cohort of students, three years later upon their graduation from law school and look at their actual bar passage uh, in their first two modal jurisdictions and their uh, employment rates in the JD required and JD advantage jobs and to observe the distance between the actual and predicted um, outcomes. 
And I, I in essence, attribute that to the law school. Um, because if mm. we think of law schools as a black box, they're taking in students and they're putting them out on the other end with with a JD credential. What they do with them in the middle and uh, in, in the intervening three years is is either add value or or perhaps subtract value from those students. And um, and this method uh, is is able to sort of assess the the efficiency of the school based on the students they have at uh, realizing uh, outcomes that really matter to students, um, such as bar passage and, and employment. And this dovetails with some of my dissertation research in my PhD program, where um, I, I actually was trying to assess uh, in one of my dissertation papers um, what sources of information students rely on in making their decision to enroll in law school and what uh-huh. uh, what what sort of outcomes are most um, are, are most salient to students uh in, in law schools across a variety of different typologies of law schools, you know, elite law schools and, and public law schools and, and uh, private law schools and so forth. And I find that those two things, bar passage and, and job placement are, are super salient across sort of the, the different typologies of law schools and law students. So um, it, it, there's, there's a little bit of sort of uh, you might say uh, method to my madness and why I chose those outcomes. They weren't merely arbitrary. Okay. Okay. So just to be really clear, what is your value added ranking telling us or trying to tell us that other law school rankings maybe don't? So I think that most law school rankings, and and I'm thinking of primarily the U.S. News and World Report, which is um, is it it has the first mover advantage, and so it has uh, the greatest sort of number of, of people who follow it and, and attribute meaning to it. Um, that type of ranking and, and above the law has a similar ranking and other, other um, journals do as well. Uh, those types of rankings effectively are telling students, here is what a top law school should look like. It says nothing really about what the students care about. And, and many rankings are based upon reputation in some way. They they include uh, surveys to, uh, in, in in their methodology. They they survey deans and professors, judges, lawyers to ask them what their understanding of uh, sort of on, on on a scale of one to five where this law school should rank. And there is a, a tremendous amount of um, time invariance that is baked into those type of rankings because um, very little is done to change people's opinion of a law school, even though there might be tremendous changes uh, for the better or for the worse within a law school. And so all that to say, um, what my ranking does is it removes altogether um, the, the, the presence of uh, a, a time invariant peer uh, reputational score and there are other rankings that do this too. Um, you know, Paul Karen and, and Bernard Black had a ranking that uh, looked at law professor uh, f- scholarship and and sort of ranked law schools based on the the you might say the ubiquity of the the names that were f- residing faculty at the law school and, and how influential their their research was. Um, and you and I have, you know, worked on a, a other, uh, another ranking system that doesn't have this same sort of baked in, um, reputational factor, but really and truly what sets my rankings apart, I think is the fact that it, 
deals with a modern challenge that law schools face, and that is that they, uh, out of necessity, have begun to admit students that they probably wouldn't have admitted 10 years ago. And um, the the LSAT and the GPA um, medians across all schools has has uh, suffered somewhat or, or to a greater, greater extent at some schools um, in the last 10 years. And this method says, no matter the students you're taking, what are you doing with them, law schools? And, uh, and arguably, if you're taking students who were, you know, predicted to, to have um, less advantageous outcomes, and you're able to get them there regardless, um, that's something that's noteworthy. And, and really, in this sort of environment in which law schools presently operate, that's the type of questions that we should be asking and answering. Um, and, and I think that's what my, my, my value-added rankings do. Right. So if I'm understanding correctly, then what you're, what you're saying is that your ranking is effectively telling students, how effective is this school at improving my performance uh, by, in relation to what my kind of predicted performance would be? In other words, how much of a better lawyer or more, um, more likely to be successful lawyer is this school going to be? I think that's a, a nice sort of summary of of um, what it's attempting to do. At the same time, um, I, I, th- I I sort of hesitate to say that it's telling <laughs> it's telling students anything, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I, I really and truly, what it's doing is it's showing how much a school departs from its prediction, uh, and mm. and I think that you can read that one of two ways, right? The first way is that you can read. You can, if you're the, if you're a law student, if you're a consumer of, of these rankings as a law student, you can read it as saying um, these schools are going to get me where I want to be, regardless of my credentials coming in. And these school these schools are going to be better than than those schools because um, the value added rankings use actually standard deviation differences, not an ordinal scale the way other ranking systems do. So you can actually measurably see the schools that are better at at this type of movement. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're a law school, another way you can read it is. Um, we're either performing or underperforming our prediction, and and this is either sort of tenable or or or, or sustainable or not. Um, and my concern is that in the in the hands of the wrong person, I think they could say, you know, it, it sort of doesn't it doesn't um, this sort of thing doesn't matter because the students that we're admitting um, we're we're taking them to the levels they need to, but. It, that could be a sort of a year blip. It's not, my rankings are very responsive to each cohort and I expect them to change tremendously next year uh, based on the new bar passage. And so um, I hesitate to say that you should read sort of anything into them uh, on a perennial basis is, is really what I was trying to say. Right, right. Well, I'm wondering like from the perspective, for example, of a student who might be considering law school whose incoming LSAT scores are at the lower end of the test range. So a student who coming into law school is kind of predictively at risk of struggling with with bar passage. On the margins, might they think that a school that performs better on the value added ranking might be more likely to provide them a benefit as a law school than a than a school that performs slightly less well. Absolutely. On the value added ranking. Absolutely. And I think that that is that that would be a fair assumption to make. But mathematically speaking, there is sort of a caveat to that, which is 
I don't know if you've noticed, but the top four are sort of some of the usual suspects, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Yale. And, and the reason for that is from a mathematical perspective, um, none of those schools have a perfect 180 on their LSAT measures. None of those schools have perfect four O's on their GPA measures of students. And as such, when they realize virtually a hundred percent job placement and virtually a hundred percent bar passage, um, they are still outperforming their prediction because their prediction started from less than perfect uh, uh, inputs. If if you see what I'm saying. So, um, so as a result, you know, it's not that these schools are sort of overperforming. They're, they're doing just what you would expect them to do with their students. It's the schools that you wouldn't expect that crack the top 25 that are way overperforming that, that mm-hmm. uh, I think students who were sort of uh, on the margins in, in terms of their LSAT and their GPA, um, that they could look to those schools and say, this, this school was really good at preparing its students in this year for uh, the outcomes that matter to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like so many rankings, it seems like there's an awful lot of stickiness at the top end of the ranking and often a lot more variance when you go farther down the the rankings list. Um, how how closely ha- did your assessment um, correlate with other uh, other rankings metrics? I mean, you know, did you find that there was a pretty close correspondence with, say, U.S. News or Above the Law or any of the other ranking systems? Or did you see schools performing differently? You know, I did run a correlation uh, uh, number um, to get a correlation coefficient between my rankings and U.S. News and World Report. But I did that so long ago now, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what the correlation coefficient was. It wasn't very mm. high. It was a mid-range number. I think it was in the like mm. 0.4 or 0.5, um, uh, meaning that it, these things are not perfectly correlated. In fact, it might have even been much lower than that, um, if, if memory serves. But uh, I do include in the rankings a, a column that lists the school's U.S. News & World Report ranking. And you'll notice I also include a column that has um, the change uh, from, let's say they were a, a particular school was 15th in the U.S. News and Report rankings, but comes in at 25th in mine. There would be a, the change. The change would be negative 10. Um, and mm. so I include uh, those two columns for the for the readers um, uh, to, to to look at and and examine the and, and sort of uh, does it pass the eye test or whether there's a there's a strong correlation there. And and my answer is is. There really isn't. Um, there, there is a bit of stickiness at, at who is at the very top, but uh, those, you know, those top four are closely file, followed by schools like Southern University Law Center and Faulkner University, and, and schools that uh, traditionally are, are nowhere near the top hundred, even. Hmm. Hmm. So you've seen in in your rankings, then you saw that some schools significantly outperformed others in terms of their ability to improve student performance. That's right. And, and a lot of this has to do with those schools taking students from, um, from really sort of, uh, they're, I mean, historically low credentials, uh, LSAT and, and GPA and still preparing those students to, to pass the bar and still preparing those students, uh, for careers in law and, and, and matching them with those careers. So, um, Again, this is something of, a, of an artifice of, of the, the math behind this, but 
a school that would be predicted to have um, very low rates of both bar passage and um, job placement, say around 25%, because they're at the 25th percentile of all schools based on LSAT and GPA, um, that overperform on those metrics would would sort of benefit from the biggest gain. And, you know, I I think I referenced Southern Law Center. They rank fifth in my value-added rankings. um, They're basically a full standard deviation and then some uh, from where they were predicted to be, which is, which is substantial. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and there are a number of other schools that, uh, you know, that we would expect to sort of round out the top 10 Virginia and Columbia, for instance, come in at nine and 10, uh, respectively, but there are, um, there are several schools that, that maybe we would not, uh, the John Marshall, uh, law school, uh, in Atlanta ranks at 17 Ave Maria at 18. Um, and, and these Mm -hmm. are schools that uh, traditionally, um, are, are not ranked by the U S news and world report. Um, but that have benefited from uh, significantly outperforming their their predicted um, outcomes. Well, clearly that ought to matter for incoming students, right? You want to choose the school that's more likely to help you to succeed than the, than the one that's not on the margins. What about from the perspective of the schools themselves, from the school administrations, or from the perspective of policymakers? Are there ways you think that they could use your study productively? So um, I'll start by discussing the, the policymaker uh, perspective because I have a colleague, uh, a, well, a friend really. He he came through the same PhD program that I did at Vanderbilt, and now he's um, he works at Emory University after having worked at their law school. Um, uh, but he's in the provost office. I'm not exactly re- recalling his title right now. But Justin Shepard um, has cited to my paper in using stochastic modeling estimation of the efficiency of law schools. And he does so in a comparative context. So he actually assigns an efficiency coefficient to law schools in terms of these same questions based on the student's undergraduate GPA and the student's LSAT and the student's uh, GPA within their time in law school. Um, How efficient is the law school at uh, producing students that that go into careers in the law and and are, are, are bar pass uh, ready. And, um, and so, so it's already being used in that respect. It's sort of, it's sort of, in, uh, you might say inspired other research in this area. And, um, as far as, as law schools themselves, I think this is actually as important to them as it is to, you know, a potential consumer, the, like a, a loss, a potential law student would be, or prospective law student mm-hmm. would be. I, I think this really tells law schools, you know, how, if we think of ourselves as a black box, are, is the is the information we're baking in uh, to students and and the education we're we're inculcating into them and the preparation that we're giving them is that is is it working out the way we think it is? And if not, um, what steps can we be doing to to sort of improve? Um, students bar passage. And, and this is actually a very live question. Uh, many, many law schools are trying to figure out, um, you know, what the secret sauce is in, in preparing students for the bar. This was a historically um, low year in terms of bar passage. And so uh, I think this is a worthwhile endeavor for law schools to figure out the extent to which they need to dedicate resources that prepare their students for the very reasons they come to law school to be bar pass ready and to have a career in law. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems especially for kind of schools with historically lower credential incoming classes, with the ABA threatening sort of deaccreditation of schools that don't meet minimum bar passage rates. Um, this seems like it might be a pretty salient uh, bit of information. I, I would agree, and um, it's something that has generated interest. I know that um, Paul Karen posted it in his blog when it when it was first written. My my ranking system and and above the law posted about it. And um, it's generated discussion because um, this is sort of the first real application of, of an econometric approach to evaluating um, law school's efficiency. Uh, and, and so I, I hope that it continues to inspire and, and engender conversation about um, what it is that we're doing in law schools to, to best prepare our students for, for their careers. Right. Right. So you and I worked on uh, another law school ranking system, which we referred to as a revealed preferences ranking. And I was wondering if you could describe for listeners sort of what that means, how the how the sort of the ranking system was put together and what it's trying to tell us. So um, revealed preferences is another economic term. Uh, and what that means is that um, – through action, economic actors reveal their their uh, their preferences at the risk of sounding redundant. What what it is that matters to them, and so um, our rankings that reveal preferences rankings that you and I worked on, Brian, uh, was sort of a a, a way of um, analyzing in a way that no other ranking system has, uh, somewhat subjectively. Um, what it is that law students with the best credentials, uh, where it is they enroll. So if we think that this law, the best law schools are those that are most successful at enrolling the best students, where is it that these best students are enrolling on the basis of their GPA and LSAT? And if we think of their GPA and LSAT as some sort of currency or purchasing power, where are they spending it? So that's what what our what our rankings were responsive to, and uh, and it was a it was a really sort of interesting uh, thought experiment, and one that I was pleased to work on with you. Um, and what we did with those rankings is that we um, we looked at the, the again those sort of six cuts of those two uh, important inputs, GPA and LSAT. We looked at the seventy fifth, the median, and the twenty fifth percentile um, for every school's incoming. Uh, one out class. And we created a composite based on the standardized or Z scored um, uh, metrics of each of those uh, inputs. And in doing so, we were able to, to again, scale on a, on a, distri- a normal distribution with standard deviation differences, um, the, the distance that exists between schools on the basis of those, those inputs. And so what we were attempting to do is to is to see does this shake up in a meaningful way the US news and world report rankings does this does this move the needle on who the T14 are and so forth and what we found um is that actually yes it does and and there are a variety of of sort of narratives that we were able to craft to explain why our rankings came out the way we did and principally i think some of the the interesting findings that we found are that Law students might pre- prefer a particular school because of its 
location or affiliation and not because of its sort of reputation, which is a heavily uh, relied upon factor in the U.S. Duesenberg Report rankings. And, um, and to that end, you know, uh, the, some of the schools that, that, that come to mind are um, Notre Dame and, and BYU um, are affiliated with churches. And, and those uh, schools had higher GPA and LSAT relative to their peers in the U.S. News and Report ranking. And therefore, they were ranked higher in our Revealed Preferences ranking because students affiliated with those churches, is, uh, with those churches might be more uh, inclined to, to, to attend law school at a law school affiliated with their church. I think Baylor also uh, outperformed in this area as well. And a school that jumped out to me, being a native Texan and, and Dallasite, is that SMU performed well above its U.S. News and World Report ranking uh, in our rankings simply because uh, at the time it was the only ABA accredited uh, really uh, law school of any notoriety in, in Dallas and, and even at the, the DFW Metroplex, although Texas A&M uh, in, in, in Fort Worth has sort of uh, crept in and, and taken its share of, of the market as well. But SMU did it remarkably well because it's the school that people who want to practice in the fourth largest metropolitan area in the country would hmm. want to go to. Right, right, right. And that seems to dovetail with what you described as being some of your current work in your dissertation, looking at the factors that are salient to students. What kind of further research have you done in that area? So I'm actually uh, in the process of finalizing that article for the February um, submission cycle for law reviews. Um, and so th the article that I referenced or the, the, the part of my dissertation that I referenced uh, was a survey to four different law schools. Uh, one was a private sort of elite uh, law school. Another was a public flagship law school. Um, another was a public regional law school. And the last was sort of a private new newer law school. And those correspond with about four of the six typologies of law schools that, that really exist. And also, they also corresponded with the different, if we think of the, the 200 uh, ABA accredited law schools in the country, divided into four tiers of the, the top 50 by U.S. News War Report, the next 50, the last 100, you know, and, and last 50. Um, mm. They corresponded in each of those categories as well. So they were illustrative cases, I think, of, of um, many of the types of schools that exist in, in those sort of peer pockets or peer tiers. And the reason why I surveyed those schools was because um, of, of their representativeness. And I found that and the survey was really geared toward getting a sense of uh, what sources of information students rely upon when they're going to law school. Why do they go to law school? What uh, outcomes are they most interested in? Uh, what is their sort of sense about risk aversion? Um, I, I, asked, I captured information on, on uh, their grades and, and sort of student loan debt and um, their, their responsiveness to, to scholarship uh, as being uh, a way of, of defraying the cost of law school. So really, I, I, it was a very comprehensive survey. It was, it was 31 questions, but I, I, I really ran the gamut on, on what I, I wanted to cover. And the, this first paper that I'm uh, writing on, on that survey research um, addresses that. And it, it addresses law school choice in that framework uh, from both sort of an economic decision as well as um, a decision about uh, one's one's career, one's desires, 
um, as well as uh, an uh, informational asymmetry decision. Law schools have a lot of information, some of which they give to prospective law students. And and how effective is that information at, at being disseminated to influence law students' decisions? So um, uh, it's I think it's it's a really sort of important um, descriptive and 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 associational uh, piece. And um, and and it's been you know I, uh, over a year of working on now. I, I disseminated the survey in October of 2017. So um, so I've had a year to sort of think about these questions, and uh, it was very well received. That the response rate was over 40 percent, which is remarkably high. Um, uh, and, yeah. and and that's for all students at each of those four law schools. Um, so it's it, it was a it was a really um, successful research endeavor. And that's something that uh, that I'm looking forward to putting out this this spring. Um, I have two other papers for my dissertation that that I'll eventually sort of trickle trickle out, um, and and once they're ready for uh, publication in a law review, um, that's exactly uh, where where I hope to place them. Um, and they deal with mm. with uh, the effectively the, the the analysis of whether from a law school's perspective financial aid is is an efficient um, motivator for students to enroll and matriculate at a law school, which is a really important question to answer um, for law schools. And the last paper um, looks at the near-term and long-term labor market returns of going to law school and specifically the types of law schools in which students uh, enrolled. And for that, I use uh, not my own data, in the second paper, I used the ABA 509 disclosure data. In, in this last paper, I used the after the JD study, which was um, done by researchers at um, at the American Bar Foundation. Uh, it was in conjunction with uh, the Access Lex and um, uh, Northwestern Law School and a handful of other uh, institutes were involved. I think NALP also was involved. Um, but that study looks at the, the 2000 cohort of law school graduates. Um, and assesses them at three points in their career, um, some 12 years on, including uh, into their career. And so it's now um, it's almost four year old data that I'm looking at. But um, it's a really important sort of economic question about the the sociology of the profession and the sociology of the education that these students uh, as law students received and how that impacts their career um, some, some 12 years on. Um, as as lawyers and and other professionals, so um, those are the th- the three main papers that comprise my dissertation. But uh, they'll be sort of as I said, trickling out uh, over the next uh, maybe year or so. And then I've also got a, a a handful of other projects that I'm working on. One's through the American Bar Foundation, where I'm looking at. Um, uh, the, the after tenure study, which a colleague of mine, Beth Merch, did, where uh, a colleague uh, Megan Daw and I are trying to predict the uh, sort of the, what causes a law faculty member to either uh, leave their institution, we call this mobility, and and, and go to another law school, or uh, a trip altogether from teaching in, in the legal uh, academy. And, um, mm. and so that paper is sort of in the, in, in its middle stages. I'm also doing uh, an investigation with a colleague of mine, Chris Marsicano, um, where we're looking at, um, the, uh, f- the fair market value impact of endowment divestment from fossil fuels, um, which is sort of a, a live question, 
uh, and it has some normative implications as well. And then finally, uh, Mike Simkovic and I, um, who's a colleague at, at uh, USC's law school, are conducting um, a, a categorization and really a, a, an analysis of law school's uh, specialties based on their sort of human capital allocations to disciplinary areas within the law. And, um, and so that's been sort of a fun data project to work on as well. Um, so I'm keeping very busy in addition to teaching, teaching, teaching my first year of, of, you know, uh, property, um, this, this spring. Wow. Wow. Well, it's going to be a lot of information for law school administrators to be processing as you get these papers out. Um, I'm sure it's going to be really useful for people to, to see all the, the results I hope that so. you find. Yeah. So I was wondering, CJ, in closing, you mentioned that you had an opportunity to talk to someone from U.S. News and World Report lately. And I was wondering if you could just briefly describe you know, that interaction and sort of what, if anything, you learned from it? Well, um, actually, I was uh, invited to be a part of a panel at the Axis Lex Institute's uh, most recent research symposium uh, in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the, the other members of the panel included Justin Shepard, who I referenced is at Emory, and uh, Bob Morse, who is the chief data strategist at U.S. News and World Report. Paul Karen, who's dean at Pepperdine, was also invited, but he was uh, attending to his law school's needs during the, the really tragic um, fires in the Malibu area. Um, and so uh, Bob, Justin, and I were, were on the panel, and I think it was a really productive and useful conversation about what are rankings, what should they be, and what should they be in the law school context. And I had um, some slides prepared in which I discussed the issues, and, and particularly, in my view, uh, the issues of um, the inherent and, and sort of uh, perverse incentives that are, that are within the U.S. News and World Report's law school rankings. Um, and we've seen evidence of law schools sort of gaming the rankings in terms of how they uh, report, uh, as well as the, the ways in which they construct these workarounds to the different metrics in, used in the U.S. News and World Report methodology. And I had the opportunity to, to address that with Bob, um, you know, and in front of an audience and, and, uh, as well as to describe sort of what I think, what, when I think law school rankings are most successful. And I think rankings are most successful Mm. when they're salient to stakeholders. And, and that, that includes sort of a, a, a wide perspective of, of who stakeholders are. Obviously, prospective and current students should be at the forefront of our, of our thought when we think about ranking law schools. But we should as well consider faculty and administrators of law schools. Their perspectives might be different um, than and, – and certainly I think indeed are different than a student's perspective on, on rankings. Additionally, the public um, is an important stakeholder as well as the practicing uh, profession and graduates of law schools. So for, for myriad reasons, I think instead of having one ranking that addresses all of those people as, as U.S. News tries to do, I think we ought to have multiple rankings that, that are salient to each specific stakeholder group or, or at least a, a, some small combination of them. And that's, that's what my rankings mm-hmm. try to do. And um, I, my, my sort of view is that my rankings are not the only way to to look and and at and be um, 
salient to to the stakeholder groups that that my rankings address. But my view is to let a thousand flowers bloom. I think that um, that there should be uh, a greater sort of discussion and use of data uh, to to be able to identify the law schools that are successful in, in this sort of modern context. And to that end, I think Access Lex is working on a, sort of a data dashboard that would allow uh, a prospective student to compile information that is salient to them and uh, at least in a head-to-head way compare law schools. And that sort of uh, tool, I think, is, is a step in the right direction. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, CJ. I look forward to reading the avalanche of papers you seem to have. Coming. Well, I, I, I'm always intrigued by your work, Brian, and, and we need to, uh, to get together again soon. It, it's a pleasure to speak with you today and, and also to call you my colleague and friend. enduring cool that goes beyond lime. A new kind of cool called bitter lemon. Cool, fresh, and lasting. It go away beyond lime. Cool, fresh, and lasting. It called bitter lemon. Bitter lemon, aftershave and cologne. A new kind of cool lemon. New from British Sterling. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 